Hello, I'm Paul Heaney, VP Editorial Director of R&D World Magazine. It's my pleasure to welcome you to the fourth installment of the R&D 100 podcast. In this podcast, my co-host Amy Kalnaskis and myself strive to take a look at the science of innovation and keep you all up to date on any interesting research. For those of you who are regular listeners, welcome back. We're glad you've invited us into your headphones or your car speakers or wherever you're listening to us. Hi, and I'm Amy Kalnaskis, R&D World's Senior Editor. And if you're not a regular listener, you're in for a big treat. With each one of these episodes, we look at a former R&D 100 award winner, turn it around in our hands a bit, poke and prod it, figure out what's so special about it, you know, that kind of thing. And maybe try not to break it. Yeah. Um, that is that is one way of looking at it, Amy, for sure. Sometimes we even uh, drink it after we turn around in our hands, right? Okay, now see, you're referencing earlier episodes, at least that's what my memory is telling me, which is going to make <laughs> newbies feel bad, or at least kind of lost, Paul, don't you think? Uh, you're probably right, sorry about that. Yes, for uh, for those of you who didn't tune into episode three of this podcast, Amy and I were examining a super cool process that is used in polishing bourbon, vodka, and other kind of alcohols, and uh, we got to sample the finished product too, right, live on air. Yeah, that will be one that's hard to top or top it off. <laughs> For sure. Uh, but before we dive in, I wanted to mention that the 2021 R&D 100 Awards is kind of in the news this month, right? It is. Good point, Paul. Thanks for bringing that up. The call for nominations just went out a few weeks back, and I think that the submissions portal opened on February 1st, right? That is correct, Yes. Um, and just in case anyone out there isn't familiar with the R&D 100 Awards, but if you're not, I'm not sure why you're listening to this, but in case you're not, uh, this awards program was first established in 1963, and it's the only science and technology awards competition that recognizes new commercial products, technologies, and materials for their technological significance. There are six regular categories, as well as five special recognition categories, including an all-new one for 2021, Special Recognition Battling COVID-19. I love that new Special Recognition category, Paul. And I I can't wait to see the kinds of innovations that will be submitted there. Mm -hmm. Hey, so, audience, if you're interested in submitting for the program, go to rdworldonline.com. And you'll see a menu bar item at the top that says R&D 100 Awards. Just hover over that and you'll see the enter now option appear. So as we mentioned, the competition is already open for nominations and the normal deadline for submissions is May 7th. Uh, There's also a late deadline, but the entry fee goes up $100 for that. So I suggest you just focus your brains on May 7th. Yeah, ditto. All right. I know you said there was something you want to talk about before we get into the meat of today's episode and it's Dean Kamen, right? Yes, it is Dean Kamen. Good, good guess. Um, I had the opportunity to interview Dean recently live on a webinar series called the Future of Design Engineering Series, which is something that's being done by R&D World's sister publication, Design World. And that magazine is more uh, focused on OEM design engineers. But uh, I've had the pleasure to meet Dean a couple of times over the years, and I've interviewed him before. And so I knew you know, how incredible all of his answers would be. And I know you listen to it too, Amy. Oh, I listened to the whole thing. I I mean, I I couldn't stop. 
And it reminded me of being at a TED Talk. Honestly, Paul was just, Dean, for any of you who don't know the name, is a brilliant engineer and inventor. Yeah, he invented the Segway, the chair climbing wheelchair, created the hugely popular and game-changing first robotics competitions for school kids, and is generally a super guy and amazing humanitarian. He truly believes that engineering and science can change things for the better for the whole world. And you know what? Like one of my favorite quotes, because I'm a science fiction junkie, mm-hmm. is Dean came and said, the only difference between science and science fiction is timing. I, I mean, I've got that plaster yes. on the wall now. I, I, I mean, he had he had tons of great quotes, but boy, <laughs> if you know. haven't listened to it, poof, you got to do it. So that that's a great point, Amy. Um, so we had an hour scheduled for that live interview, and we went for, I know, well over 80 minutes. Um, I could have just kept asking him question after question all afternoon. I could have kept listening. <laughs> <laughs> Me too. Um, I did ask him one R&D focused question. And so that's why I wanted to talk about this for a few minutes. And I wanted to share his answer here on the podcast because I think our, our listeners will, will enjoy it. Yeah. Um, so our annual R&D World Global R&D Funding Forecast was just recently uh, released. And uh, kind of big news, it, it predicts uh, that China will outspend the U.S., for the very first time in R&D in 2021. Mm -hmm. Um, It's going to be China with $622 billion invested versus $599 billion for the U.S. Um, This is something that, you know, if if you've read the GFF over the years, I mean, this is something that we've seen coming for a long time. Um, Tim Stutt, who, uh, you know, writes uh, that whole report for us and has been doing it for four decades. um, He has said, I know, uh, in the past, like, you know, maybe... 2022, 2023 is when he, you know, saw that uh, approaching, but I think which is with COVID and how crazy the world was, it moved up the time scale. So now, you know, this is the year. So anyway, I, I asked Dean what he thought about China's R&D investments um, in areas like robotics and AI from a technology standpoint, it, you know, are we going to be able to keep up? And I also asked him if it concerned him at all. And so I thought his answer was pretty fascinating. So here it is. Great. Yes, it concerns me a lot, but I think overly simplistically saying, no, we as a country should always spend more than anybody in the world is both neither practical or fair or realistic. They have a multiple of our population. Uh, They eat a multiple of the amount of food we eat every day, uh, even if it's the same amount per capita. The fact is they have less food per capita, but they still eat more than we do. You have to normalize that. So there'll come a point, I hope, where the world has a much better distribution of educated people that are all working on solving problems. And part of me says, I'd rather have 10 times as many people racing towards curing this form of cancer or that form of cancer before I find out it's the one I have. Um, I think whether, whether we come up with a great new engine that doesn't pollute, uh, whether that's invented in the US or China, or Israel, or any other country in the world, as long as it's properly disseminated, uh, we all win. In a a world where good ideas can be spread across the whole globe, why wouldn't we want as many smart kids everywhere uh, doing that? But having said that, am I worried that it's not just that China is spending more and more on research and development, but maybe on a per capita basis, the U.S., isn't doing everything it should be doing to stay globally uh, competitive. I am worried about that. And all you have to do is look at this country. We started out with 13 little colonies that somehow 
escaped from one of the biggest empires the world had ever seen. And these 13 little colonies certainly didn't start uh, with massive amounts of, of libraries and universities and research institutions like all of Europe had or thousands of years of China had. Yet from the time this country sort of became what we now think of as America, from the very beginning, we just screamed ahead of the rest of the world in terms of almost every metric that we claim we value today, public education, standard of living, quality of life, access to health, you name it. How could that be? We started out at this little, this little group of uh, reprobates, right? How did that happen? This country was about innovators. They created wealth. We didn't conquer other countries. We didn't take over uh, other countries. We were a country built on innovation. You know, it's not a coincidence that, that you know, Thomas Edison was here, that Wilbur and Orville Wright were here. When you look at the history throughout the Industrial Revolution and up till today, you know, whether you think about the modern versions of some of these super innovative companies, whether it's Apple or Google, they are here and they create industries, they create great jobs, they create a future. And by the way, a lot of the technologies they create are, are sustaining and protecting our independence and our freedom and all that other stuff. So if America has any question about whether there's a return on investment at the government level for research and development, all they have to do is ask themselves, why has America always been so uniquely uh, great and always outpacing uh, the rest of the world? And if we stop investing in innovation, I would really want most of these people that think there's a debate about that to look in the mirror and say, you think you're just entitled to a, a better standard of living? You think it's just going to come free because of what your great-grandparents uh, once did? Uh, America needs to keep reinvesting in, in, in its future, in education, in kids, in innovation, taking the risks, reasonable risks, and, and doing things first and doing things best and doing things that are scalable and doing things that will be valuable to us and then valuable around the rest of the world so that uh, we can uh, maintain and justifiably maintain a high standard of living without doing it at the expense of other people. Uh, I think, ironically, a lot of countries in the world have figured this out while we're kind of sitting back taking it for granted. And if you look at a lot of countries, not just China, but a lot of countries around the world are highly motivated to make, make technology, STEM education for their kids a very, very high priority because they just look at the model. America, they all think that's a great, great, great aspirational model to have. They don't think it's because we have Democrats or Republicans. They think it's because we've been innovative and we have technology available to so many people that, that, that have this high standard of living because we use these technologies. And the rest of the world is determined to create that next wave of technology where they are. As I said, I think in some ways that's exciting. That's great. Let's make it a competition where we all win because everybody's creating more and better technologies at a faster rate, hopefully to keep us ahead of disasters, whether that's global warming or other shortages. But as the rest of the world picks up their pace, yes, I am worried. If the U.S. doesn't pick up our pace, we're going to wake up one day and say, huh, we've lost that edge. We've lost that lead. We can't assume that this is going to be the best place for all of us to retire. Uh, that's not 
a birthright. That's something that every generation has earned. And I want our culture to make it clear to the next generation of kids, you better earn it or you won't have it. Wow. There's just so much there to digest. I mean, I, it makes <laughs> me want to go back and listen to it again. <laughs> I mean, I, 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 first off, I love, you know, just his, if you've ever heard Dean speak, I mean, he's, you know, he's an engineer, he's an inventor, but he's also such a humanitarian. So I do love his, his, his comments about, you know, obviously there's always, you know, this country versus that country and our budget versus their budget. But, you know, his, just his point that if, if we can innovate and, and create something that's going to change the world, that's going to make the world better for people, whether it's, you know, clean drinking water or something to help kids. I mean, like that, that shouldn't be something we're battling over. That should be something we should all be fighting for together as humanity and not, you know, pitching one country against the other. I mean, in, in an ideal world, right? Yeah, yeah. But I mean, he he had this, um, I don't know if I want to say cautiously optimistic, but as opposed to being very gloom and doom as mm -hmm. as, as many can be, in, 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 even in his position, it did have, I, I felt hopeful, even with everything that's happening. Yeah. I, I, I walked away, I'm like, okay, there's hope. And he, and just, you know, so many of the things that he brought up and I am um, thinking about, you know, and he talked about artificial intelligence and people get kind of freaked out about it. Mm -hmm. No, no, it's going to take over. And, and um, he had said, he said something about um, there's a certain fear that it conjures up when people say AI, mm -hmm. but he said it's, it conjures up that fear for, by people who don't understand it. Mm -hmm. So you know, he he just made me want to learn more. I mean, I'm not afraid of AI, but I think he he brought up some very good points. And uh, yeah, and 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 also putting the onus on, you know, the the next generation, the kids. Like he said at the last part, you know, you better earn it or you won't have it. Love that. Well, and then the AI, he uh, the, I, I love the comparison he made too. Um, and obviously, this is a different part of the talk than what we 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 just played for you, but. Uh, he talked about back when uh, like excavators or ditch diggers or, you know, the first like kind of, you know, off highway construction equipment uh, machines were built. He said, you know, people there didn't back then didn't call it, you know, artificial muscle and they were terrified, about you know, it's like, okay, well, like we're, we're, we're putting too much humanity on these intelligent programs and, 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 the less we understand how they work, the scarier they can be. And and you can take anything, whether, you know, it's a hammer or, you know, a nuclear, you know, power and, and use it for good or bad, depending on how you. Yeah. I mean, the more you understand it, the less scary it is. That's a, a pretty much like I walked away with that feeling as well. So, I mean, that, that, that uh, analogy back to, you know, the ditch diggers, and so that was replaced with machinery and, and it will along the way. But I, again, I didn't feel like, oh, everything's going to be replaced in a way that no one's going to have a job. It's just um, he puts that into perspective and it makes you like step back and just kind of think of the timeline of humanity and and in context of science. And uh, yeah, I just I, well, I was. And, grateful. <laughs> yeah, and I think, you know, kind of, you know, from what we played here, um, I love how he just kind of goes through, like, you know, we were these 13 colonies and what did we have? You know, well, we, we took our resources and we invested them in research and libraries and universities. And, and I mean, we didn't 
just luck into becoming America. We we did the hard work. And, yeah. you know, I think he is a little concerned that we've got to keep reinvesting for our future. And, and I mean, that's kind of the, you know, what we talk about every day in our R&D world and what we talk about in this podcast. So I just, again, I, I just, you know, thanks for for bearing with us. And I hope you enjoyed the the Dean quote, but I just, I, I thought it was very uh, apropos to you know, kind of stuff we talk about in this publication every day. Absolutely, Paul. Thanks for picking that up and putting it in there. And uh, I think it's it's enough of a teaser, I hope, for everyone to go listen to the whole 80 minutes. And trust me, it's not going to feel like 80 minutes. It's going to feel and, like... Yeah, if you're interested, you can go to uh, designworldonline.com. And I believe it's on the menu bar there, uh, resources. And you scroll down, there's a Future of Design Engineering series uh, button. And, and it's a monthly thing. You know, uh, one month it's on aerospace. Uh, we actually have a... a, a Great speaker from Los Alamos coming up, I think, in April for aerospace. Sometimes it's electronics or 3D printing. Uh, this particular was uh, one was the February one, and it was Dean Kamen for robotics. So I uh, encourage you to go listen to his whole his whole 80 minutes. Uh, and like I said, Amy said, um, <laughs> it, it seems like it'll be 10 minutes. I mean, it's yeah, just, yeah. And hey, fun. I just got to put a plug in here since you mentioned it. I'm hosting the next one. You are. That's right. <laughs> so, hey, when you go to that drop down box, like Paul said, under resources and future of design engineering, you could register for the next one. And it's going to be kind of cool. It's uh, I'm, we're going to be t- it's, uh, let's see, March 10th. I know day after my birthday. Um, and, and we're going to be talking about flexible electronics, which is really very cool as well. So, mm-hmm. yeah, looking, looking forward to it. I hope you all join. Very nice. Well, so I think we should probably uh, get today to today's main event, don't you? <laughs> yeah, let's do it. Okay, great. Today we're going to be talking about a product called Hades. <laughs> Sorry, Paul, but when you, you you let me know about this, I was like, all right, sometimes I already feel like I'm in hell and now you're going to put me through it in a podcast. <laughs> uh, yeah, something like that. <laughs> yeah, so it's I, I'm guessing we're not talking about the Greek god of the underworld. Um, no, um, God, I haven't thought about that since high school. Um, <laughs> no, we are not talking about the Greek God of the underworld. Okay. Um, instead, back in 2017, some cyber researchers from Sandia National Laboratory in beautiful Albuquerque, uh, Vince Urias, Will Stout, and Caleb Lavero came up with this idea for foiling hackers. So rather than simply, you know, kicking out a discovered intruder, their idea was to perform deploy a recently patented alternative reality called Hades, which stands for High Fidelity Adaptive Deception and Emulation System. So now you see why they call it Hades. Mm -hmm. Um, This system feeds the hacker not what he or she needs to know, but what he or she wants to believe. Uh, Is this like a honeypot, Paul? Um, It is, but I would say it's a much more sophisticated version of one. So I spoke with Vince recently, and he filled me in on so much. So here he is uh, just describing the genesis of the idea. Our background, we're all sort of security folks, right, doing a lot of like security research. And one of the benefits of being at the lab is we get to see sort of challenges from all parts of government and industry. And we came to this sort of realization, right? I think the at the time, right? And remember, this is slightly a little bit older, but the the mindset was always, right, when there's a compromise, what we do fundamentally is uh, pull the plug, so uh, disconnect, and then start doing forensics. And and look at disk forensics and memory forensics and all the other things, right? And I, I think there's a lost opportunity in trying to understand 
what the adversary's intent and motivation and skill set was. So we said, how do we build a platform or, or really it's a capability to interact with adversaries in a more interactive fashion. And, and, and really the end state for us was to learn about them, right? And, and really, really sort of taking this sort of intelligence mindset because there's a huge lost opportunity to understand all of their motivations. So, so that's where Hades came from was how do we sort of leapfrog and become more predictive in our cyber defense? Before I forget, uh, let me tell you a little bit more about these three fellows. So Vince, who we just heard from, came mostly from distributed systems. And a lot of his work has been in uh, virtualization and IT automation and, and just thinking about systems. Uh, Caleb Lavero is a world-class reverse engineering person. So his background is a lot of um, reverse Windows internals and Linux internals. Uh -huh. And then Will Stout, came from the Department of Defense, and he's communications and networking uh, kind of person. Mm -hmm. So the three of them had a full spectrum view on things, and they boast something like 75 years experience just between the three of them. <laughs> cool. I just can't wait to see where this goes. So, okay, you mentioned honeypots a little bit yeah. ago, Amy. Um, so according to Vince, in the late 90s to, say, the early 2000s, that whole notion of the honeypot was pretty popular. The, the term honeypot comes from the idea that, you know, the programmers want to create something sticky and presumably delicious, um, you know, kind of environments to get uh, the hackers sort of trapped in. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And if you create this other area to get the criminals stuck in, they are less likely to keep trying to get into the main site that they've been hacking. That is true, Amy. But there's also another layer to it. They also, uh, the IT people also want to learn more about how these hackers operate so they can devise other ways to keep them out in the future. It totally makes sense. So one of the issues, of course, is that both sides, you know, keep trying to one-up each other. Hackers are, I'm sure you can guess, pretty intelligent criminals and yeah. tend to learn quickly. So eventually they can fingerprint these honeypot environments. So Vince and the team took a slightly different approach with Hades. They wanted to develop like a whole immersive environment for their adversaries to move around in. And so we create really high fidelity synthetic environments with real data, real users, uh, uh, real information that is synthetically sort of operating within this environment, right? So you have people, synthetic people creating documents and creating PowerPoints and talking to one another, browsing websites, right? So that gives it the lived in feel. So that's sort of the basis of everything. Underneath, right, I, I had this principle, which was we want to allow uh, folks to do whatever they want, right? Adversaries to move anywhere within this network, and we want to watch them. The first part is the virtual machine inspection uh, component, which sits underneath the hypervisor and watches everyone transparently and collects rich information about uh, what's going on in the operating system, who's doing what, keystrokes, all these things without anyone knowing. And then we have this sort of really novel software-defined networking fabric, which allows us to move adversaries into different segments of the network without them knowing, without breaking the TCP connection. Hmm. This is super complicated and sounds like they almost need AI, artificial intelligence, to accomplish that, right? I, I had the same thought, and so I asked Vince about that. Um, his answer was, uh, he just prefers to call it fancy math. What we're doing is we're scraping and collecting lots of public information or internal information and then synthesizing it into a graph 
and then sort of using that to automate the process of creating uh, endpoints, so like machines and laptop, uh, synthetic laptops, um, and then sort of key services, domain services, and then we mine user information from lots of different spaces and then put those into the environment. And then, and then there's this like linguistic component that creates natural language processing and, and allows us to create like real uh, uh, linguistic content. So it doesn't look like we're right, reciting Shakespeare to one another, right? So it's all about contextually relevant information that people are sharing with one another. We want real stuff. We want to say, hey, right, I'm, 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 I'm an organization that works in biomed, so they're going to talk about biomed information or whatever else it may be, right? It's, it's all about like, and for us, right, it's about promoting consistency and attracting the adversary to real things and then forcing them to move around, right? Because at that point, you get to learn a lot about how they move between network segments, how they operate between uh, uh, what data they're interested in, right? It's all about like this tradecraft question. Really fascinating. Now, how is it doing in the market? Um, and actually, who uses this? Is it like only for government labs or how about like just assorted corporations? And can they purchase a version of sorts? Um, good question. Um, so it was developed by Sandia, as I mentioned. So Hades is free for government use but then they do allow it to be licensable by other partners. And interestingly, they have an in-state rate there in New Mexico to allow commercial entities, you know, in their backyard to license it. And then they let them take it in, you know, all sorts of different directions that the lab simply doesn't have the resources to do themselves. Um, Vince told me that they have continued to work with government agencies to fine tune and and scale and then find different ways of deploying Hades. Um, Obviously, he was only able to talk about the public stuff, but they've certainly looked at creating environments for things like industrial control systems. Um, and he mentioned that you know winning an R&D 100 award provided them a nice little spotlight. So as far as it, it kind of operating out there in the real world, here's what Vince said. You know, what's interesting is in different deployments, given different sort of contexts, we're able to sort of watch um, adversaries do things, right? So we see them navigate the systems and we see them uh, interact with different services, but what we're also able to do is use the information of how they interact with our system to further evolve the platform. So, right, like if you're an adversary, right, uh, depending on your sort of methodology, you don't necessarily know what is a valuable target, right? You may be just be doing spray and pray and you're doing a lot of spear phishing attacks or, or watering holes on websites. And we're sort of able to sort of mix and match different things to interact with all those use cases. But at the end of the day, right, uh, an adversary sort of also has the work to say, is this a legitimate target? And they do a series of things like, uh, let me look at the browser history. Let me look at the the system uptime, or let me look at how recently things were installed on the operating system. And sort of, we've been able to synthesize all these things to sort of help the evolution of continuing that deception. So what's really interesting is sort of like learning from our adversaries and then sort of evolving the platform in such a way that we continuously make it more realistic for the next engagement. And of course, there are always lessons learned in the development of these kinds of tools. So here's what Vince shared with me. Adversaries are crafty. <laughs> and, and you know, I think the amount of work and automating, right? Underlying all this also is a lot of like, I wouldn't say fancy math, right? But really stitching together lots of different events. And I think being able to do that at scale is a really expensive task in the sense that like you have to like, be engaged and you have to have sort of folks who understand networking and virtualization and uh, reverse engineering and, and its response. So, um, you know, I think we've had 
I think lessons learned for me in a lot of ways has been, you know, I think we had a really good interdisciplinary team, right? Like myself, right? Uh, Caleb uh, will come, come from different disciplines and being able to put us into the same room and, and let us sort of evolve the platform has been great. And now here's another interesting thing, Amy. Vince has three R&D 100 awards to his name. In addition to Hades, he's also won for Chirp in 2019 and Hecate in 2020. You know, everyone loves the acronyms, which were related projects. So I also asked him about those other winners and, you know, maybe what his secret is. Uh, Chirp came from this mindset, right? We had developed this instrumentation platform out of uh, Hades to watch adversaries in real time. And we came to this like realization that doing instant response on the cloud, right? So everyone's moving the cloud and you're off-prem or on-prem with this hybrid approach. And like, we have zero tools in that space. We have this crosswalk for a couple agencies to say, you know, what's the gap analysis between the risks of on-premises use versus like tools and, and, and capability in the cloud. And we said, hey, you know, our ability to sort of introspect and learn about adversaries and like just completely like forensics and instant response space doesn't exist. So we took pieces of that platform and evolved it to this like little uh, really cool tool where you just sort of loadable kernel module that you can load on a hypervisor, uh, independent hypervisor, right? So ESX or uh, KVM, we can load underneath it and and start learning and collecting data transparently about operating systems without having prior knowledge about what the operating system is, what's running, et cetera, and just build this like world context to sort of do like real time uh, digital forensics on demand. And then, and then sort of the next evolution from that was uh, software supply chain. So we did a lot of work on looking at software supply chain starting in like 2017. And there's just sort of, we charted a whole bunch of issues in, in the software supply chain space. And we realized there's really limited tools in understanding our supply chain, what, what is happening with our applications. Um, the canonical I give is right, our phones today, when we install an app, it says, hey, um, uh, do you want your app to, to interact with your phone or your contacts? Uh, and we we created a platform to enable us to to ask the same questions, sort of as a mental note of 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 our software, right? We don't ask this of our enterprise software. Do you want your enterprise software communicating to these weird IPs? Did you know your uh, software was turning off your firewall? Did you know your software was uh, scanning your internal network? All these things. So we we sort of create a platform around that to help people understand the lineage of their software. We do a little bit of static analysis to do binary analysis and, and some, some of the dynamic analysis to just sort of give this context of the potential risk indicators that may exist in software for updates, for new software. So CISOs and others can make informed risk decisions on, on software acquisition. Paul, I know you always like to dig into how people people foster innovation. Hey, I, I'm, I'm there with you, right? Mm-hmm. But given that Vince is a three-time winner, I'm really curious as to what he said. You're guessing my questions in advance now, Amy. Yes. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I do like to ask people that. Um, so he kind of told me uh, that he feels there's a couple main components. Uh, first, he said that having an interdisciplinary team is really important. You know, people who have different skills and, and putting them in a room and having them work together. Um, and then secondly, I, I think the other thing that was really critical in his mind was taking risks. You know, you have to be okay with failure, right? Right. We, I think failing fast and sort of trying stuff and sort of never saying that the status quo is okay and always challenging it 
is, I think, a mindset for us to say, you know, how do we do this better, faster, uh, better, uh, quicker, more scalably, you know, with a hundred thousand more things, right? And and I think the last one for us is uh, working in an environment that has and allows that culture of innovation. You know, I, I talk to a lot of partners in other spaces who don't have the opportunities to say, let's go to a lab, right, and get 20 people in a room and like have a brainstorming session. But for us, right, we have that great opportunity to say, I want to take some materials people and other folks and like, and and be okay with like having conversations and 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 always learning, if that makes sense. Yeah. But I, you know, I, I, we love it, right? I think this is why we're all still at the lab doing great stuff is we, we get to be exposed to, maybe that's another one, right? We, we're also exposed to lots of really hard, challenging problems from across government and industry and saying, you know, I wish we had a widget. I wish we had a thing. And, and you sort of collect these, right? I, part of my process is sort of hearing different requirements from all of our partners and saying, you know, there's a theme here. There's a widget, right? Cloud is coming up. Software supply chain is coming up. You know, our ability to cre- create threat intelligence, and and we sort of hear all these pain points, and we are able to synthesize them into a into a tool. And you know, for us, it's taking it one step further, not just doing proof of concepts, but but challenging the team to take it to to deploy it in different spaces, right? We we want to try things, right? We're okay with saying, you know, this isn't perfect, perfect. There are warts on it, but let's try it and see what happens. I love it. And I feel like maybe in one or two other podcasts, we've stumbled across that same concept of Mm -hmm, interdisciplinary mm -hmm. skills and risk. Yeah. Combination for success, in my opinion, but here you go. So, hey, so, you know, I always manage to find an elephant in the room. I'm I'm the elephant hunter of sorts, Paul. So (laughs) I'm about to talk about it here. Is that okay? (laughs) I've I've come to expect it from you, Amy, but... um... I'm curious to know what your elephant is this time. Usually it's a little more obvious to me. Okay. All right. So maybe I'm overstating it then, but what keeps coming to my mind is the whole solar winds hack of government computer. Oh. I mean, was this involved and, and did it keep some systems safe? I mean, those are important systems. I guess I'm just surprised that it hasn't come up or, or that Vince didn't say anything pertaining to that as, as it was all over the news, at least at the end of last year. Well, no, no, that makes sense. Um, so I did ask about that, but honestly, you know, Vince or, you know, the representatives at Sandia weren't allowed to comment, which, you know, is, is not surprising, you know, at all. Um, really, all I was able to get, you know, even from the PR team was a statement that, you know, the work of Vince and his Sandia team is the basis of a method that could eventually protect industry, universities, and government agencies against intrusion by adversaries or competitors into computer codes, the cloud and supply chains. So, you know, of course that nothing really addresses the SolarWinds hack, but I mean, I guess that's fine with me. I'd I'd rather have him and his team have the upper hand over the assorted bad guys. So I I guess I'm, I'm happy to leave it right there. Yeah, yeah, I know sometimes I can seesaw kind of precariously, but 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 hey, I get why they have to kind of keep it hush hush. I'm just glad they're working on it. Like you said, very cool. Yeah, very cool. Hey, Paul, anything else that you share with me, with us? Um, I do have one funny anecdote to share with you. <laughs> of course. Again, I like the elephant in the room, I would be surprised if you didn't. So just go for it, Paul. You no, know, my my weird brain always goes in strange directions. So. <laughs> um, so this is what would amuse me. So yeah. a few years ago, Vince and the team wanted another award for their work. And he was telling me about how they were invited to the award presentation which was held at the National Cathedral in uh, Washington, D.C. 
Oh, wow. Okay. I'm going to go back in history, like quite a few decades. I was actually born in Washington, D.C. And we would go to the National Cathedral whenever one of my seven siblings would have um communion and uh, like oh, after yeah. the communion we'd, we'd go to the national cathedral and they they actually had like a, a what i remember because i'm a foodie that's the that's the part i'm remembering is <laughs> i think downstairs at the time they had a um oh a cafeteria kind of thing and okay you know, it was it, that was a family outing and it is it's, it's a beautiful beautiful building if no one's yeah. ever been there if you've not been there before audience and you get a chance i, I i'd make it a, a, a stop yeah well, so anyway, Vince had told me that they were honored, you know, received the award. And he, he's related how he, it was a really weird experience being in the cathedral at night for the award show. Um, he actually told me that it was really eerie, but he also described it as a super awesome experience. Nice. I don't think I've ever been there at night, but I I, I get it. I get what he's saying, just based I, on the I, picture. You can picture, yeah. right? Yeah. <laughs> but it occurred to me that, that here he was in the National Cathedral, receiving an award for something called 80s. So I think if I were him, I would have been worried about like a lightning strike or something. <laughs> yeah, you know, I've, I've felt that way a couple of times and have been spared the strike. I'm glad he was, because look what else he went on to do. <laughs> That's an excellent point, Amy. Um, oh, you know, so, you know, let's let's close on this. I loved uh, what Vince told me about being aware of these kinds of threats. So give this a quick listen. You know, I think I think from a lab perspective, I've always had this sort of awareness question. Right. And I think, you know, each of the technologies we develop, I think, are pain points and, you know, active defense, cloud sort of security and software supply chain, I think all have lots of threats and lots of challenges. And I, I, I encourage everyone to sort of become more aware, right? I think we are becoming more digital in lots of ways. And I think under, right, in every industry, be it IoT or OT, ICS space, biomedical, right? You walk across every industry and right, software is everywhere. Um, it's, it's becoming increasingly connected. And I think we have to ask more from everyone. And what I mean by that is like, uh, we're accepting risk in lots of different spaces and where our data resides, where uh, our, our software is coming from. And uh, and I think we should probably do more diligence as a community to say, you know, we should be more diligent and aware of the threats that exist for sure. All right, and that is all I've got for you today, Amy. Well, there's some really wise words from Vince there. That's not great. Thank you. And I appreciate it, Paul. So, hey, looks like that's episode number four in the books. Um, what's next for us or what's in the hopper, so to speak? Yeah, it's, it's always fun to do these with you, Amy. Um, well, on the next edition of the R&D 100 podcast, we will be talking about a medical device procedure that is now being used on some of the smallest infants who are born prematurely. And I'm really excited uh, for that episode. So stay tuned. Oh, I, I'm I'm totally going to tune into that. I guess I have to since you I'm have to. You're the it. <laughs> but hey, it's that's very cool. Super cool. I can't wait. Well, as always, if you're a past R&D 100 award winner and you have an interesting creation or development story to tell, we need to talk. Please email us the details at researchdevelopment at wtwhmedia.com. We're always on the lookout for topics for future R&D 100 podcast episodes. And make sure to subscribe to the podcast and follow us on Twitter at 
EE World underscore Amy, A I M E E, and WTWH underscore Paul Heaney, P A U L H E N E Y. Until next time, this is Paul Heaney here. And Amy Kalnoskis over here. Signing off. Thanks so much for listening. <laughs>